This is the Disciple Makers Podcast. The following audio comes from the National Disciple Making Forum by Discipleship.org. The theme was Disciple Maker, and Ken and Vaughn of Downline Ministries hosted a track called Discipling Millennials, Engaging the Next Generation of Church Leadership with the Gospel. Here's the session from Downline Ministries. Welcome back from the break. Uh, Danny, thanks so much for uh, getting us into the game, as you said, and uh, just kind of helping define some of the terms and getting us to begin to think critically and strategically about how to reach millennials. I wanted to do something, and um, this will be a little bit uh, tricky, but I think it's important. It certainly would help me a lot uh, to know how to best, hopefully, steward and maximize this time for you guys. Um, by the way, uh, your, your ticket probably says that uh, John Sarver is going to be teaching this session on what um, millennials need. I don't know if any of you guys know John personally. Um, but if not, uh, then uh, you won't be too disappointed by this. But John's wife is actually having contractions and in pain and, and about to give birth potentially to a baby today or this week. And so uh, it seemed like it was unwise for him to come give this talk. So uh, John is, um, has been uh, one of the young men I've had the chance to disciple for um, the last three years, still presently in my discipleship group. And uh, is, I really lament you guys just not being able to meet him. He's, he's a millennial. He was incredibly theologically astute and passionate, has a huge love of the, of the local church, and, um, and presently leads our Emerging Leaders program. So I do uh, lament that he's not here. Uh, I've t- discussed at length with him um, his talk and, uh, and can uh, potentially walk us through that. I've also got a couple other ideas. So it would help me to maximize our time, and I wanted to do this anyway without taking Danny's time. I'd love to hear just a little bit from you guys. Okay, I might try to popcorn this thing unless you guys are really slow, then I'll make you go around one by one. So popcorn would be more effective. I'd love to know, why did you choose this track? And, um, and, 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 and if you don't tell me in that, specifically tell me, what, what is there a, a, uh, something you really need to learn from this or want to learn from this? Um, so so what, that, that may be the same answer. But what led you to come to this, and, and what are you most hoping to learn in terms of ministering to millennials? So could somebody please start, uh, start the answers, and let's popcorn a few out here. Okay, so there's a, so there's a whole, and are you on a pastoral staff? Or? Okay, and there's a, sure, there's a hole in that age group in your, in your church. Okay, that's a story often told. Yes, hole in that age group in the church. Okay, uh, what else? Opposite end of the scale, hordes of millennials coming to the church and uh, wanting to be able to tweak the groups so that they can effectively disciple the millennials. Yeah, you guys close by where you can merge, merge up? That could be nice. Yes, sir? Hilarious. I don't think the teaching team is supposed to shame the participants. No, thank you. Um, okay. Yes? Okay, mama of three millennials. Mama of millennials and uh, want to be able to disciple your children well. Yes, Alicia, right? Yes. We have a church. Okay, a lot of young uh, millennial ladies coming into the church in that season of life, and you're wanting to try to help connect them uh, with older women in the church for effective discipleship, and you're kind of in charge of that. Okay, gotcha. Somewhere in the back, yep. Yeah, good. How to bring millennials into leadership in terms of the church and community and let them be culture setters and not just, um, yeah, trying to uh, minister to them, but ministering through them. They are the the leaders of the church, like it or not, in this next generation. So how to to effectively transition to their leadership. Okay, good. Yeah, right here. Uh, Let me say this. Be hard to address all of those things in one in one uh, session. So let me just tell you a little bit where we're going to go. I'm going to I'm going to try to be faithful to. Um, I think what what John had on his heart to uh, pass on to you guys would be pretty helpful at this juncture. And so I'm going to try to be faithful to deliver those to you. We may dialogue back and forth a little bit and have even some Q and A during this. But it's going to be a little bit more on what about forty uh, percent of your questions were, and that's specifically. Um, how to minister to um, millennials in and through the uh, systems and uh, people of the local church and the importance and value of uh, the local church as a part of that discipleship ministry and um, valuing 
the millennial generation within that. And so the questions that were kind of about that, we'll, uh, we'll talk about those now. And, um, and, uh, and then we're going to have a session first thing in the morning. Uh, Miss Ariana is going to lead that. Uh, she was uh, helping MC uh, the main stage. Uh, she worked with us at Downline Ministries for about five years. Fantastic disciple makers, worked predominantly with millennials. She's going to talk about a specific issue of helping them move from uh, fear to faith, just kind of a diagnostic on what she's seen discipling millennials and a lot of uh, uh, insecurity, fear, and passivity, and how do you help move them forward to followership of Jesus then in the fourth session, I'll come back and I'll talk about what a lot of the others of you asked about just now, which were specific questions from, you know, Alpha, reaching the millennials at your workplace, specifically, how do I actually disciple them? Uh, you know, what, what, are the, what are the principles in play that are unique, if any, to discipling millennials? Uh, so I'll talk about that, uh, those aspects. And again, my, not because I was targeting millennials, but just simply because of my age. I'm about to turn 40. It's crazy. Never thought that would happen. Um, but I, um, I've spent, uh, by God's grace, yeah, the last, uh, uh, the last 17 years of making disciples has been fully with millennials. So just uh, before it was a thing that needed to be a thing, uh, that, was just, those were the, that was the group right below me uh, in life and maturity and season. So uh, that's, that's where I've vested my time and, and, um, and hopefully can share some from my experience in that. And then in our last session, uh, Shad's going to talk about... Uh, the importance of uh, authenticity in our relationships and how do you cultivate that. He's going to do kind of a TED talk, a, a brief talk on that. And then we're going to have a panel discussion revolving around it and we'll take Q&A in that as well. Okay. So hopefully that kind of tells you where we're going and hopefully we can at least touch on a lot of the felt needs that you guys came here with and wanting to understand better how to minister to millennials. So um, let me uh, channel my best John Sarver here. Uh, picture me with a lot cooler haircut, a lot tighter jeans, and, um, you know, you get the idea. Um, and he's a lot smarter, too. So, uh, but uh, if you all want to open your Bibles to Ephesians, yeah, a big, thick beard. I forgot that part. He'd be mad at me for forgetting that. If you want to see him, just go to the downline website. Stare at his picture while you listen to me. Um, Ephesians 4, Paul writing to the church in Ephesus, uh, starting in... Um, Verse 11, chapter 4, verse 11. I mentioned this passage when I shared a little bit of my testimony with Soup. But here are these words of the Lord. Um, and he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers, watch carefully here, to equip the saints for the work of ministry. So one more time, he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry. For building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Just imagine that in your church. Is that true of anybody's church yet? Anybody arrived? Works in progress, right? That individual sanctification is very much seen through the corporate sanctification. But hopefully, your church is maturing. Okay, not devolving or disintegrating, but maturing. Um, that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves. This is the, the rebuke the Hebrew author of Hebrews gave the people. You've, uh, uh, in three years, you're still on milk. You should have moved to meat by now, by now. So there ought to be a maturity moving from children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine and by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. That's what's true of the children. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, in a Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Okay, that's the word of the Lord. And uh, I want to talk about this. Um, John was able to pull three things from this passage. John, again, and I, I really, I really tr- if you knew John as well as I do, I'd really trust him, his heart, and uh, his credibility in this. Again, speaking as one, um, he's presently a seminary student, uh, planning to plant a church uh, in the not-too-distant future, incredibly theologically astute, enormous heart for the Lord, lives very missionally among his peers. Um, one thing, by the way, I, I don't want to forget to say this. So let me, uh, Danny mentioned this kind of in passing. I think a few of the things that we need to deconstruct are the ideas that um, uh, that millennials, and even when we talk about that, there's some kind of a project and not people. That you know we've got to you know we got to get the stats right and get more millennials in the church and just trying to reach a demographic instead of trying to reach individuals. 
And that's the second thing. Every millennial, even the couple that are in the room that have admitted themselves, um, are, uh, are individuals. They're not stereotypes. Like we, we, and Danny did a great job of saying, here's the stereotypes. And even the stereotypes might be a micro percentage of the whole. So recognize that the millennials aren't different than you and I in their brokenness, their loneliness, their sinfulness, their need for the gospel, their need for someone. Did you hear the, the, the number one takeaway from Danny's talk was what a, what a blessing godly parents are, what a blessing a, a youth ministry that's gospel-centered, that complements what the parents are doing, what a blessing all that is. But the number one factor determining whether uh, these now millennial young adult Christ followers are indeed making disciples was whether or not somebody had actively discipled them and shown them the way. Kind of makes sense. That's what Jesus commanded us to do. It's like he already knew what the answers would be. Okay? And so, A, in his genius, that's the way he lived. Um, uh, Christ's uh, ministry was uh, to, um, in, in some ways, like what we, how we talk about the, the millennials, uh, to a group of, um, who had largely been rejected by the religious culture of their day. Uh, many of them had gone back to their uh, roots as fishermen or uh, what, whatever they were doing, their, their family uh, trade, because they didn't cut it in Hebrew school. And yet Christ gives them this unbelievable invitation to follow him. In uh, Mark 3.14, you guys have probably seen this verse, pretty, pretty amazing verse. He calls them and designates them to be apostles. That word means to send away from. Um, that he, one day, he designates the purpose right from the beginning. He's going to send them out. But it says that they may be with him for a time, and then he may send them out. Christ knew that the key was the invitation, follow me, and I'm going to make you fishers of me. But there's a critical follow me time. What the millennials need more than a a magic program or a magic pill or anything else or great preaching, which great biblical exposition is important. Pour the word of God in. Share a spiritual meal that is incredibly nourishing and edifying as a church family on Sundays. But just know that 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 wasn't Jesus' strategy for discipling in and of itself. He didn't tell the disciples, y'all meet me in synagogue on Saturdays. Every Saturday, don't miss one. Three years, you guys are going to be ninjas in the Word. Uh, he didn't say that. He said, follow me. And what every millennial needs, just know, is the same thing you and I need. And that's why I'm so excited about what you're doing, Miss Alicia. This, uh, the same thing they need is what we need. And that is a, dis- a real discipleship relationship where somebody that's further along in their faith cares not about us as a statistic and doesn't come to the table with all kind of assumptions about who I am and what I need, but cares about me, loves me, invites me into the messiness of their life, that they can demonstrate the love of Christ to me and how they love me in response to how they've first been loved, and show me how to follow Jesus. Okay? This is what the guys at your plant need you to do in their life. This is what the gals need to do. They, they, they're not, when we come, there's some transcendent principles. Dr. Coleman in his book is right. In the Master Plan of Evangelism, the reason that book has circled the globe so many times and had so many millions of, um, of, of uh, copies sold is because it, it, is, it, is, it is mining out the biblical framework and principles by which Christ used to make disciples. And Dr. Coleman, I actually had spent three years doing my doctorate study under Dr. Coleman, so he's a hero of mine in, in every way. And what he always said is the, the context changes, the relational context changes, the principles stay the same. One thing I'd offer to you if you hadn't read that is read that book in light of the context that you're dreaming about in your church. But don't treat the millennials. This, this is what John's belabored to me, and make sure I say this, is um, don't treat them as the redheaded stepchild. Don't even treat them as different. Yeah, there's, there's uh, fads and, and things that are uh, in that won't be in in 20 more years, just like they weren't in 20 years ago. But these are people in the same human condition with the exact same needs, and there's still no strategy for winning, reaching, and building them as Jesus' strategy. Okay, so that hadn't changed. We don't want don't to go too far in nuancing it. And I'm going to talk specifically about those principles tomorrow in the session, okay, in uh, session four. Well, John said three things that you need uh, uh, and speak with integrity from him. He said, from this passage, the first thing we see is uh, the millennials need the church. Some of you guys are amen in that. I can see it, and, and others of you are, are kind of nervous about that, especially on the heels of what Danny just told us. You know, a lot of these, a lot of these uh, students that are actively following Christ in the, in the millennial generation are saying it's because they're part of a parachurch that that reached them, discipled them, and taught them to disciple. It's kind of sad that the overwhelming statistic is not because they were part of a church that did that. Are you all with me right now? 
And I'm not meaning to step on each other. Parachurch had a profound influence in my life as well. Planting baseball through Athletes in Action was a defining moment in my life. Thankful for that parachurch. Um, I, I do want to be careful in saying, therefore, because in campus ministry seemed to be a really strategic thing in a season of life where, the, where they can, get, they can, get, they can uh, do some things that would be a great help to the body and bride of Christ. And God seems to be blessing them with great fruit. So who am I to stand in the way? I'm not speaking negatively towards the parachurch as much as I am going, hey, the church, I don't want the parachurch to be an end because the church failed. I just want to say, if, if that's where you've landed, let's just leave the church and put all our eggs in the basket of parachurch. Let's just all go serve in parachurch ministries. Then we have left the plan of Christ. Okay, in Matthew 16, he said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Matter of fact, I did something right before I, uh, I came up here. I, um, I had not seen Dr. Coleman in a while. He comes each year and speaks in, uh, at our institute, but uh, it's been almost a year since I've spoken with him. And I went uh, down front. He prayed for us, which was uh, really sweet. And I uh, just appreciate his passion. And have been many late nights and early mornings on my knees with Dr. Coleman praying. And just love listening to that man go to the Lord. But I asked him, um, I said, Dr. Coleman, I'm about to be uh, sharing in a workshop here. And um, one of the things I'm going to be talking about is uh, the necessity of the local church in discipling millennials. He goes, okay. He goes, well, it is necessary. I said, yeah. I said, um, I said a lot of... Um, a lot of millennials are turned off by the church. Why don't you just mention that? They either don't trust it because of wounds and abuse and hypocrisy, um, or they were led to Christ and trained in a parachurch ministry that taught them to think the church is impotent. So if you, if you want to kind of hang out over there and do nothing, that's fine. Or you can run fast for the kingdom over here. Okay? Whether, they, whether that was the, the actual message or just the message they got implicitly. And I said, so, so why is the local church so important? And uh, can I just tell you what Dr. Coleman said? This was like an hour and a half ago. Without pausing, he said, well, first, because the gates of hell cannot prevail against the church. Not the parachurch, but the church. Can okay, I understand that's big C church. I get that. Um, the universal church, the body of Christ. But uh, as, as ordained and established by Christ and by the word of God, that has an expression. It has a visible expression called the local church. Okay, that's, that's a, and, and that was his second point. He says the local church is the witness of the gospel power. Now, it makes me sad as I say that because I, I, we're a poor witness in many ways. A lot, of, lot of, uh, of broken churches right now. A lot of churches just fighting and church politicking and doing a lot of things other than pursuing the Great Commission and displaying the transforming power of the gospel at work in our own lives who selflessly love others above ourselves, which is impossible apart from the transformer of Christ constantly at work in us. Daily confession repentance and unity amidst diversity. Gosh. Uh, by the way, if, there's, if I could touch on this, uh, uh, millennials are incredibly sensitive to this. The world is constantly um, idealizing in, in a positive way diversity. You, you watch any commercial for any product, what are you going to see? Um, you're going to see different races on there. Male, female, black, white, Asian, Hispanic, like diversity is everywhere. It's hip, it's cool, it's popular. Diversity is, is a gospel issue in the church. All right? In Ephesians 2, the, the wall is torn down between Jew and Gentile. Uh, uh, the church is one of the last bastions of segregationism left in our country. And the millennials look at that and go, I don't want to be a part of that. So ironic and sad. That's meant to be the place where we display authentic relationships that are multicultural and cross-generational. It's meant to be the place that shows the world how to have unity and diversity because there's something that bonds us together that is far deeper than everything that might otherwise separate us. It's the blood of Christ. The world doesn't have that, so they'll portray a false, idealistic view of diversity. We're meant to show the real thing of what the transforming power of the gospel does. And so we have the witness of the gospel in the local church. He went on to say, the church is going to be victorious. You want to be playing on the team that's going to win. Christ will assure this. He's promised this. And then all evangelism and discipleship has its end in building up the church. Don't labor elsewhere. We're talking about the bride of Christ and the plan of Christ. I thought that was a great little nugget from... uh, from Dr. Coleman. John had the wherewithal as a millennial to, to plead, honestly, what he would do if he was here, knowing you guys mostly uh, are lay leaders or even pastors on staff, was to say, we got to recognize the millennials need the local church. Why? Well, what did the text say? 
What's the local church been given? Did you guys see this? He gave the local church apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, teachers. The the local church has been uniquely gifted by Christ to raise up disciples. Not in every generation, but this one. No, right now. So listen to me. The millennials that you know, they don't merely need you as Christ in their life. They don't need you as a functional Savior. They don't need you to be the perfect disciple maker because they can't. No, they need a composite, broad stroke picture of the messiness of people that have Christ as their head. It goes on to say that in our text. With Christ as its head, the perfect disciple, the perfect shepherd. And in the midst of the mess of ministry, uh, speaking the truth in love. Loving one another, establishing right doctrine, talking about it, marinating in it, growing in it, uh, under the authority established by God that must be healthy and all this. Now, my fear in this moment right now in this talk is everything in me wants to just pivot to the right and start talking about what it means to be a healthy church. Because that's a vital part of, of this. If I'm telling you the millennials need the church, they need, they need healthy local churches. So that's a whole other track is, is my only deal. So, so maybe in the Q&A you can ask some specific questions, and I might or might not have answers. Being a pastor, uh, I, I, we had the, uh, uh, by God's grace, planted a church four years ago called Harvest Church. Um, it's in Memphis, and um, so I've only, that's an acknowledgement. I've only been pastoring four years. By God's grace, the church has grown tremendously. We, uh, another grace of God that I hear in, in what you guys are saying, we are incredibly mixed up generationally, and that is such a joy. Um, um, we, we've got probably a pretty, a pretty consistent percentage breakdown from our uh, millennials, and through, which spread through our uh, college and young adults, um, into our young marrieds, into our family uh, demographic, and into our empty nesters. Uh, can I just give you a side note on this real quick? And it goes to my brother's question in the back. Uh, um, uh, you, if I came to your church for a month, I'd know what your values are, even if I didn't see them on the wall or didn't read the bulletin or nothing else. I'd see what your values are by, by what you celebrate, and you're going to cultivate what you celebrate. Let me just say this. This isn't a pat on the back to myself. Hear me say this. I don't care how many times I say it. It is the grace of God and the mercy of God. But from day one, we've begged God for generational diversity. We've begged him. And we celebrate the heck out of it. So we constantly revere our mature men and women of the faith who have been walking with the Lord longer than I've been alive and revere the treasure that their life is to give in a Titus 2 way to the rest of us the goal that there is in following Christ. We, we, we revere that long-term faithfulness and we uh, ask them to be north stars and models as the, as the scriptures declare them to be for us. And at the same time, which, by the way, uh, a lot of them are really honored and a lot of them are really scared because we don't want to put them out to pasture. Uh, we want to see them be like Caleb's, who said in his, at 80 years old, I'm sh- as strong as I ever was. I always wonder. I think he's probably just delusional. Like you, can't, you, can't have, you can't be. You're 80. But he says, I want the toughest part of the land. I think this about Caleb, if, if you'll let me chase this rabbit real quick. I think this about Caleb. I think he wasn't as strong as he used to be. I think inwardly stronger than ever, knowing Christ's faithfulness or God's faithfulness stronger than ever. But I think he wanted to go to the hardest part of the land where the Anakites were, the giants, the same ones that scared his buddies who gave the bad report 40 years earlier. I think he wanted to go there because he knew it's incredibly likely that the young men of this generation would fall prey to fear just like the men that went with him the first time. And he wants to be there to lead the charge for the glory of God. So we're challenging our... um, uh, the elders among us, men and women, to make the fourth quarter of your life or the second half of your life the most intentional and strategic and recognize you've got more to give than you've ever had. So uh, whether or not you've been faithful or been kind of the consumer Christian, this is your chance to be a part of a multiplying movement of disciple-making that's going to go to the ends of the earth. And we tell stories, and we try to inspire that through the storytelling. We celebrate. Now, at the same time, we have young people. And we have masses of them. Um, and man, I, I love them. In the same way that I passionately revere and love the older saints we have, I love the young people, the 20-somethings. Love them. Can I tell you what they bring to the church? 
they bring unbelievable amounts of missional energy. I mean, literally, you can preach the sermon and the application, and, the, and they, will, they will leave as if they're charging a battlefield. It's beautiful. And you know what they also have? This is, is just, and oftentimes they have more margin. They, they haven't gotten weighed down by just the responsibilities of life. And, and, like, and, and, they are, and they're more free. They're, they haven't yet been taught to be overly materialistic or worldly. They're being trained, but they're not fully there yet. So, man, they just hold things loosely. They'll go after the ends of the earth. They're passionate. And when you start celebrating that passion, encouraging, and as my brother said in the back, one of the things we do, we are not afraid. Uh, we, we don't look down on them because they're young. We are not afraid to put them in leadership roles. Now, we don't put them in leadership roles just because they're young and passionate. That would be foolish. We don't put anybody in roles just because they made it to 80. We put people in roles of leadership because they're faithful. But are there any 80-year-olds that are faithful in your body? Find a way to put them in leadership. Are there any 20-year-olds faithful in your body? Don't be afraid of them. That's what that's Paul admonishes Timothy towards that end as a pastor. So if you were to look not merely at our worshiping community on Sunday morning, if you were to walk down the... Uh, Upstairs Hall, we have uh, small groups we call discipleship communities that meet in the homes throughout the city. We also have a num- about 12 Sunday school classes, just using the six rooms we have in our building twice. But if you were to walk down that hall, you know what you'd see in room after room? I can, I can walk down in my mind and tell you, but you'd see a, a 65-year-old layman, um, disciple maker, teaching the class. Uh, the next guy you'd see, you'd see three young guys, one African-American guy, two um, Caucasian guys, all young, all uh, all training to be church planters one day. Yeah, I mean, you, there's fire coming out of this room. There's smoke uh, coming out. They're so excited uh, uh, to dig in and teach God's word. Then you keep going down uh, the aisle, and you've got a guy who's uh, the chaplain for our local football team there at Memphis. Um, uh, unbelievably mature beyond his age. He's about 45 years old. I mean, you walk right down the hall, and, the, and, and, and what, what, you, what you see in, uh, reflected in leadership. By the way, you also see this reflected on our stage in worship. By the way, I hope none of this sounds um, in any way uh, like uh, self-promoting or something, or, uh, or, or like we've got it all figured out. This is an answer to prayer. God's brought, and then the, the disciples of culture has been established because of the, the recognition of the need for intergenerational ministry happening in the local church. As ordained by the Lord, like He, he gave us this, this, this mandate, this model, and then these guidelines in what the local church is. So don't be afraid of millennials. Don't stereotype millennials. Real people, look for faithfulness, celebrate that, and, uh, and, and give uh, uh, room to run. Like, uh, allow for leadership. Our, on, on our worship stage, it's, it's all mixed up. You got, probably, you got younger folks and older folks. Uh, we share the pulpit at, at our church. Um, um, I teach about 50% of the time, and the other 50% of the time, we've got... Um, some of our uh, our residents who are generally speaking i think they're they 're all younger than me, but generally they 're in their twenties or thirties um, and we also have elders that teach uh, We have some elders that are in their thirties, most of those are forties, fifties, sixties, and seventies so uh, again there's there 's no element of our church you 'd look at and feel like there 's no voice at the table there 's no one that understands it, creating culture is a big deal. By the way, the same things, not just generational diversity, but, um, uh, but racial, socioeconomic, like, like what we've prayed for. We would never go beyond, we would never compromise scriptural standards. But what we've prayed for is the opportunity to have really the voices of, of, of diversity at the table with real uh, authority, uh, God-given authority, leading a church. And everybody in one sense is, no one's forgotten about, no one's ignored, no one's a statistic, no one's a project. No one's talked about as them. We're family. Everyone's represented. Everyone sees that they're represented. Everyone's vital. Does this make sense? Okay, so the first thing is we need the church, and I think what we, the church is rightly gifted is, uh, was John's first point. Um, and it's not only rightly gifted, it has as its head Christ. Really big deal. Uh, if you're ever discipling totally apart from the church, like if you've given up on the church, you've gone just, God, our church is so dysfunctional and unhealthy, I'm just going to kind of make disciples over here. Um, I, think there's a, I think there's a lot of danger in that. Because the, the, the reality is, and yes, we need to strive for faithful churches, and yes, that's another talk, but the reality is that none of us are Jesus. And, um, and at that point, when you take your discipleship out of the local church, you're, you're acting as if you can fill that void of Jesus. The void of Jesus is filled in the church. He said, I'm the head. 
You serve within the context of this local body, faithfully. By the way, let me talk. There's an individual responsibility of disciple making and a corporate. And the individual must happen within the corporate. The individual responsibility, I'll talk tomorrow about 1 Thess 2.8. Um, Paul says to the Thessalonians, he says, We, me, Sostomy, loved you so much we gave you the gospel of God in our lives as well. That's the individual responsibility of disciple making. We love people enough to give them two things, the gospel in our lives. So every one of us, is that not a great picture of what Christ did? He gave the gospel in his life, and it's truth in the context of life. Following Christ will be to do that. But the New Testament continues. We get protection. We get authority established through the local church. We have standard bearers of what truth is that help us protect against false doctrine and all kinds of heresy. And what this text says, uh, 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 every wind of doctrine and human cunning and craftiness and deceitful schemes. I don't have to be the sole protector against that if I'm a part of a healthy church where that's the elder's responsibility before God. So my individual lifestyle following Christ is played out in a corporate structure that values it, has leaders that model it, and folks that are training, teaching, encouraging, rebuking, and challenging me within that. As I follow Christ. Disciple making is just part of following Christ. Okay? So understand from John's heart, the first thing he's saying is don't, don't, as much as he, by the way, he was a part of a fantastic campus ministry. And he was vaulted into leadership. And, uh, and it was out of that that I mean, God just arrested his heart with a love for the church. And what he's pleading is, don't remove the local church from your discipleship ministry. Okay, that's the first thing. They need the local church. Why? No matter how dysfunctional yours is. And by the way, every one of our churches is somewhat dysfunctional. Ours included. That's the desired, established by God, institution for discipleship. I don't like that word institution, but the first institution for making disciples is the family. Second is the family of families. It's the local church. And that's what God established. So bring your discipleship in the church. Doesn't mean dumb down what you're doing individually. Doesn't mean don't give them the gospel in your life, passionately in pursuit, as Danny's talked about, and relational. But, but bring that into the church with all its dysfunction and, and be a part of the, uh, what Christ has said the gates of Hades cannot prevail against. And work redemptively within a broken system. That's all we can do. Okay? Okay, the second thing he said you need is uh, sound doctrine, right here out of the text. He says, until we maintain the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children. Uh, I love um, uh, Colossians 1, I think, says the same thing in Colossians 1.27. It says, uh, to them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, we proclaim Christ, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. That's the goal of the church. So that's the goal of your local church and mine. Present everyone mature in Christ. That's what we're after. In some deficient capacity, because we're never apart from our own sin and flesh, and we're never fully on, you know, we, we, we just can't, we don't perfectly... Go as the Holy Spirit leads. We're flawed in our leadership. But that's what we're after, presenting everyone mature in Christ. And we need to be able to teach and train with the truth of God's Word. I think that Danny said that in his, uh, uh, in his first talk. He said, what changed my heart was... Remember, he gave us four things. I only remember the first two, but they're relevant to this talk, so it's good. So the first one was God sent somebody who cared about me. By God's grace, I got to be that guy that cared about his life. And listen, I didn't even know what I was doing, but I genuinely loved Jesus, and I genuinely loved Danny. And uh, in a real uh, imperfect way, I at least showed him what it looked like to try to follow Christ. I was no great godly man at that point at all. Still far from that. But he said there was somebody that invited me to follow him as he followed Christ. It's a biblical model. And then he said the word of God took it from there. You see that? Hey, millennials aren't, they don't, they don't need like a, some separate canon. They need to learn to feed on the word of God. Now, the joy of relationship, authentic relationship where you actually care about, not a project, not the, you know, guinea pig of whether you can reach a millennial, but you actually care about somebody. It could be a neighbor, could be a son or a daughter, could be a young person in your church, could be somebody you work out with, could be somebody you manage at your business, that you take a vested interest in their life, that you actually love them and value them and care about them the way Christ does us. You see them in their helpless and harassed condition in Matthew 9 happens. Your heart splagnitzomai. You break for them. Well, that's going to give you platform to speak truth into their life. 
You just keep caring about them and loving about them in an authentic manner with no end goal beyond that they may come to the saving knowledge of Jesus and grow to maturity in Christ. God will open doors for you to to tell them what you think is true of the Lord, of yourself, of our greatest need and problem in this earth, of the world and worldview. You're going to get to speak to those things, not as a, hey, let me sit you down and teach you. I don't really care that much. Ariana said this at the stage. She said she always starts with what's going on in your life. It's not just a space filler. It's how she knows where they are so she can love them well. It's meeting them where they're at. So that you have the opportunity, because you genuinely care about them, you're going to have the opportunity to speak truth in their life. Your truth, now this is on us. How do you speak truth in life? Well, we got to stand on the Word of God. You don't have to learn to speak some culturally relevant different language than you know. You don't have to be intimidated by talking to millennials. Stand on the Word of God. Say, let's see what the Lord says. His Word is enduring. It's everlasting. Flowers fade. Grass dies. Word of the Lord endures forever. You stand on the Word of God, you're on solid ground. You chew on it together. Pray over it together. Marinate on it together. One of the things I do with the guys I'm discipling now, and again, I've never discipled anything other than millennials just because of the stage of life I'm in. Um, every single week, uh, we, we, uh, the guys that uh, I'm presently in a discipling relationship with, uh, one thing we do is we, we are reading through God's Word together. Now, sometimes we read a, a supplementary reading. We read a book. Um, but but we, I, I just never felt comfortable basing our discussion or having the foundational truth that we're discussing being anything apart from the ultimate truth. Like, we got God's Word. Just, just want to be there. So we're, we have a, uh, we've put together something called the Gospel Journey in our church. Very, very simple. It's a bookmark. That's how simple it is. And we have hundreds of folks in our church that are using this as a, as a discipleship tool. All it does every day, it shows you what to read on the back. It has the most basic questions of hermeneutical uh, hermeneutics. It, it, it teaches you how to observe the text, interpret what's being said, and apply it. And you keep a little journal every day. And, and, and by the way, if nothing else, the guys that I'm discipling, here's what I know every time they show up on a, uh, on a Thursday morning. When they show up, I know for seven days they've been reading God's Word. Oops, I just turned something on. All right. They've been reading God's Word. They've been They've been asking God how to interpret it, and they've been asking God, asking the Holy Spirit to teach them how to apply it to their lives. Hey, uh, most of the heavy lifting is finished. I get to come along and say, what's the Holy Spirit teaching you? Now, if they say, man, he's, you know, if they say something wild, like he's teaching me to question my, my gender, uh, you know, or, or some, something that I go, now, hold on, where'd you see that? This is where the greatest thing I can offer them is a foundational grid of understanding God's word and passing it on. In relationship, what did Paul say to the Thessalonians we're going to give you? The gospel of God in our lives. These guys know I love them. They know I don't think I've arrived. I'm laboring with them for the sake of Christ, and we're digesting God's word together. This is our curriculum. I would challenge you to never make your, your foundational curriculum anything other than the word of God. You want to reach millennials? And I'll tell you this, one thing I appreciate about millennials, and uh, Danny said this as well, they are pretty theologically uh, inquisitive and astute. They, they can sniff out what's, what's real and what's not real. They've seen enough shallow teaching and shell of religiosity with a form of uh, godliness but no power. They've seen enough of that. That's why many of them left the church. So don't feed them more of that. Say, the only chance we have, and anything else less would be to do a great disservice to them, give them the truth of God's Word. If it's true, you don't have anything to worry about. And look, every time they ask questions you don't answer to, don't fake it. Don't fake it. They, man, they can sniff out fraud so quick. Say, that's a killer question. I have no idea the answer. My theory is the Word of God is true. Let's search this out. Man, now you're going you're gonna, to you're gonna build some apologists because you're going to find truth together. You, y'all with me? Don't veer. That's what God told Joshua. Don't, don't go to the right or to the left. You can be courageous when you just adhere to my word. Okay? So I would really encourage you. What this is saying is they need the church and they need the word of God. And then thirdly, still in Philippians, thirdly it says, look, we've got to speak the truth in love. We're growing up together into him who is the... Uh, Christ were held together by every joint with which it's equipped. You can't have this picture of growing to maturity in Christ apart from relationship. True? 
Can't do that on an island. So again, the local expression of the church, it means something. It's gifted accordingly. It has the right head as its uh, source. It's got the Bible as its guide. And, and here's the deal. Um, we're meant to have relationships with each other that are uh, mutually edifying. 1 Corinthians 12 is a resource. Uh, and this is one of the things you would want to teach them. I'll talk about this tomorrow in the principles of discipling. Teaching them uh, to, to not just think about the church in terms of, well, I don't get anything out of it but to think in terms of the growing body of Christ, victorious towards maturity, and what is your role to play in it. You'll start getting a lot more out of it than you think. When you, can, I, can I tell you, my uh, six-year-old. True story, yesterday was my now 10-year-old's birthday. My six-year-old did something none of my four boys have ever done, and there was just a glimmer of hope for my wife and I. He was on the way home from his violin lesson. He hates violin. Um, I'm not sure why we're making him take it, but uh, he's, he's coming home and he says, Hey, Mom, I want to stop and get Caleb a present. None of them have ever asked that before. Maybe we're just failing as parents, but they just never have. It, it, we were so shocked. And my wife said, Well, you know, we, we already kind of got presents and, you know, your name's on some of them. And he said, No, no, I want to go to Target and spend my own money and buy him something. We were like, did you wrong him or something? Is this like penance? Like, what's going on? He's like, no, I, I just, I, please, I want, and we're going, man, we don't know if we have time. And he started tearing up. And my wife was like, okay, gosh, I got to get him to Target. We've never had a godly desire yet. I mean, it's our first one. So she takes him to Target, <laughs> takes him to Target. He goes in and uh, he buys something. He, by the way, he has $40 to his name. That's what he's earned in like a year worth of chores. And uh, he spends $22 on the, on the remote control car. And my wife's trying to talk him out of it the whole time. That's over half your life savings. Are you sure, man? It took six years to get to here. Like, that's, and that's going to really, and he's going, he's going, Mom, that's what I want to get him. That's what he'll love. And she's like, okay, well, you know what? I'm so thankful for your desire. Here's what I do. I'm going to split the cost with you. Like, she couldn't bear to see him depart with those $20. And he said, Mom, I want to give it to him. And so she finally was like, oh, my gosh, okay. And so she said it was almost painful for her to watch that $22 deducted. And she's like, I know I ought to be celebrating, but it's just like, oh, my gosh, you know, all the, you know, whatever that he could buy. So he comes home, gives a present. This morning, uh, he comes into our room at like 4 a.m. She always appreciate about your six-year-old. They have no idea what time it is. They don't care that you, you want to sleep. And he comes in. He's wrapped in his little Star Wars blanket. And he says, um, I hear him. He goes to the other side of the bed. And he says, my wife, he said, hey, Mom, I just realized something. And she said, what did you realize? We're both just, I mean, I just, he kind of woke me up totally out of it. Didn't expect to hear something great. He said, I just realized I like giving a gift to someone else so much more way better than I like getting one. Like from 6 p.m. to 4 a.m., he's just basking in the delight of having taken everything he had, invested and given it as a gift. Um. Part of the problem with the church, and it's not just among millennials, but it certainly has made its way there, is uh, we're consumers. We're shopping. This, this whole dadgum church hopping trend and the churches that are built on seeker miles try to grab you when you're shopping and try to, uh, try to placate your desire of wherever, however church is supposed to please you or meet you or attract you or win you. So I want to say be careful not to go on the trendy ship of let's just be a seeker church and do what the stats are showing that will entertain the millennials so that we can fill this gap. I'm telling you what, uh, that won't last. It's just like marriage. You've got to keep them with what you win them with. And you don't want to just have this shallow entertainment-based ministry. That's not the church. It's not the church. What you want to do is win them with love. Again, you can't microwave this. Legitimately build relationships and love them and give them the truth of God's word in the context of that relationship. Build growing disciples that learn that the joy of following Christ is in giving and not receiving. You start, you start and some of you guys are discipling millennials that have already given your testimony, you're nodding your heads. They start giving their life away for the sake of Christ, they won't be consumers anymore. They'll go, oh my gosh, that consumer thing is gross to me. It's like Romans 6, Paul saying, I wouldn't go back. I couldn't, because following Christ is so much better. Okay, so uh, there's a relational component that has to happen through discipleship, mutual edification. We need one another. Um, so we need the church. We need uh, uh, really healthy churches. We need sound doctrine, um, and we need each other.
We need to learn to give ourselves in the, in the context of the local church. Um, let me see. What, what time do we have till? Okay, we have, okay. I've asked Jamie Trussell, uh, who just showed up next to me. He is our, um, he is presently one of the uh, uh, pastors on staff at Harvest. Uh, we're a pastor. Um, he has been a senior pastor in Austin, Texas. He it also, six years ago, was the director of our Emerging Leaders Program. Um, uh, there's um, something that he has uh, shared with me in the past, and I asked him if he'd be willing to share this. Uh, I said, uh, Jamie has uh, spent some time uh, mining out some of the cultural shifts in, uh, in thinking that have taken place in the church from, say, my generation to the millennial generation. And I think this will be really helpful. If we're going to teach them sound doctrine and raise them up in the church, then I think it's really helpful to know the, uh, the lies in terms of worldview that they are presently believing, that they are swallowing. So often as you sit down at a coffee table, apart from Lino, that you really want to reach with uh, the truth of God's word, uh, that you might, it might be good to know which kind of things have built their worldview, which is a, uh, which is a false worldview. Um, uh, so, so the cultural shift in thinking, uh, there's some, uh, several components that Jamie has identified, and I asked if he would take the back end of this talk to share those with you, and then hopefully we'll have a few minutes maybe for some Q&A just to, about this session. So Jamie, if you would mind uh, sharing with us some of these cultural shifts, and I think you're going to need to use these mics. That's the amplifier. This is this one looks good back. All right. Am I on? Can y'all hear me? Yep. Boy, this is the most intense mic'd up situation I've ever encountered. It's awesome. All right, I got feel like I've been strapped on body armor. How are y'all doing? Good, great to be with you. Um Shad's gonna turn the projector off. So Kenan gave me uh probably too much credit. So a lot of what I'll run through here real quickly. These are major cultural shifts, uh, uh, not just identified by me. Uh, I've adopted it and adapted it from an author named Mark Sayers, S-A-Y-E-R-S. Uh, there's a great book, Disappearing Church, that also uh, uh, will, will uh, highlight this as well. I do want to say, though, to nuance it a little bit, when I say cultural shifts, keep in mind that, that I'm basically speaking about mainstream culture. Okay, so there are subsets of culture in America that uh, just by my experience, uh, whether it is my ethnicity or class situation or wherever I've grown up, uh, I don't always taste every cultural shift, and we need to be mindful of that. And so, uh, you know, even a lot of my African-American friends in Memphis will tell me that these cultural shifts translate uh, in some ways, but in some ways they're different cultural shifts that they're more familiar with, and I've learned a ton in, in that way and some of my Latino friends as well. And so just know that we have to interpret this as big picture, and there are traces of this everywhere, but just know there are nuance shifts as well, uh, depending on what, where you live, your neighborhood, what type of community you're growing up with. Does that make sense? Okay, so, so big picture. Uh, here's the first one. Here's the first one. And we'll recognize this pretty easily. And look, when I say these things, I'm, this is not what the Bible teaches. Right? This is what is now assumed as truth. Okay, and, and, and millennials, culture in general, are being inundated with all of these things as true from every medium possible. Okay, and so if they're not in discipleship relationships where the Word of God is being reinforced in their life to show how to think biblically against what's being taught from every direction, uh, there's not much hope that these won't then uh, infiltrate the church. And in some ways it already has. Okay, so here's the first one, that humans are inherently good. This is a basic belief of culture. Humans are inherently good. Now, if you think about that, almost everything else that we'll talk about flows from that core belief. Because if humans are inherently good, that necessarily means we can determine right from wrong better than God can or better than any institution can. And all of our experiences and emotions should be trusted. Don't miss that. So if we are inherently good, meaning we're not flawed, so this idea of inherited guilt and corruption from Adam, that we're born broken, born sinful, born, when we lose that and it's shifted to we're actually good, then we should be trusted. Well, the Scriptures would teach us otherwise, would it not? 
Okay, so there's the first assumed major cultural shift we've undergone is that humans are inherently good. And look, and I've got a fly. If you have a question, I'll be happy to answer it. Um, but I'm going to move rather quickly on, on our time. But here's the second one. Second one. So forms of external authority. Okay, how, how, whatever shape that would take. Forms of external authority are rejected and personal authenticity is praised. Let me say it again. Forms of external authority are rejected Personal authenticity is praised. So here's what follows. Large-scale structures and institutions, they are suspicious at best, they're evil at worst. So large-scale structures and institutions are suspicious at best, and they're evil at worst. It's another massive cultural shift. And you would say, an easy follow-up would be, well, then why is there so much blind faith in the progressive left as far as government would go? And uh, the, the reality of that is, look, and it's true for us as believers, we all have blind spots, but that's a blind spot with the reality that this movement is actually inherently contradictory. Okay, it, 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 there are contradictions that are implicit in it uh, as well, and that would be one of them. But this is true, this is a shift. Here's a third one. Here's the third one. Look, if we miss this one, we're living in a hole. Okay, and this is one of the biggest uh, cultural messages we're up against with the truth of God and the Word of God is this. The highest possible good is individual freedom, happiness, self-definition, and self-expression. Did you hear that? Look, that's not just a difference of opinion. That's cultural currency. Right? This is an issue of morality. So to infringe upon someone's self-expression makes you immoral. It doesn't just put you in a different uh, opinion. Are you all with me on that? Okay, so look, this is the highest possible good. It's individual freedom, happiness, self-definition, and self-expression. Fourthly, fourthly, right, we're going to talk about the primary social ethic so what is the currency for determining right and wrong? That's all I mean by that. The primary social ethic is tolerance, which, if we're honest, and we go with the progressive movement, uh, which I don't hold to be progressive, it's poorly named, it's regressive, because it goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 3, which is where man tries to be God and decide what's right and wrong apart from the lawgiver. Uh, okay, so, but here's what it is. Here's the primary social ethic. It's the tolerance which we can define as, uh, if you agree with us, we like you. If you don't, we hate you. The tolerance of everyone's, watch this now, self-defined quest for individual freedom and self-expression. That's the social ethic now. You are moral and right in as much as you align with the idea that everyone's self-defined quest for individual freedom and self-expression, that you allow it. So any deviation from that, has actually now become a social justice issue. Now, here's the tragedy, uh, and this is another shift. Uh, it's contained within this one. It's kind of like a part B. It, it, is that we're actually, look, and this is tragic, social justice is being moved out of the arena of class uh, equality, a social equality, a ethnic equality, which is where we should be fighting for it. It's actually being moved out of that, into the idea of self-expression and self-identification. That's becoming the primary social justice issue, which, incidentally, is why identity politics rule the day now. So we don't even have politicians building platforms on things that will address economic and class equality. We're building things on identity issues and the equality of you can be and define yourself in any way, shape, or form that you want to be defined. That's the new social ethic, and that's now a social justice issue. Does that make sense? Uh, okay, well, here's the problem with that. And I say this in sensitivity. Some of you may have friends. I've known people that actually uh, have the, the, the gender identity issue, uh, uh, the politically correct way to talk about it now. Uh, I think it's gender dysphoria. Uh, um, but regardless, here's why I, as a Christian, hopefully filled with the love of Christ, cannot, cannot uh, uh, let a man believe that he's a woman. Here's why I can't do it. It's because I actually believe that that's a mental illness, and I think it's hateful for me to let that go untreated in a way that would bring about healing and hope. 
Now, according to culture, the thing that I actually believe is loving is immoral. Do you see that? It's not a difference of opinion. It's immoral and it's unjust. These are some of the shifts that we're up against. Are you all with me so far? I know I'm flying. Okay. Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll do them quickly and then uh, I'd love to interact with some questions if you have them. Look, I'm not the world's authority on culture. Uh, I senior pastor in Austin, Texas, slightly different than Memphis, Tennessee. Uh, uh, and I loved it. I loved me with wonderful neighbors. Uh, 90% of our neighborhood did not agree with us in anything that we believed. Uh, but thankful for my wife, who's wonderful and beautiful. Uh, the relational part being preeminent was exercised in our home because I have a really hospitable wife. Me, I just kind of like to say, uh, that's stupid. I'm not talking about that. You're wrong. Right? So, so the gracious side, my wife gets to pull out of me. Uh, but here's the fifth one. Here's the fifth one. I don't know what to do. There you go, brother. Incidentally, I'm the 34-year-old that's never had a Facebook account, can't do a PowerPoint presentation. Right? This is all foreign to me. Uh, here's number five. The world will inevitably improve. Hear that word, inevitably. This is assumed. Will inevitably improve as, as two things grow. So the world will so so we will basically have utopia ushered in as two things grow alongside of each other. The first one is individual freedom, and the second thing is technology. So uh, uh, as technology and individual freedom grow, this idea is that we will inevitably move towards this idea of utopia, a perfect human society. There are companies. Out west right now, they're investing millions of dollars in trying to come up with technology that cheats death. Okay, the view of culture is if we just get the right technology, we can become immortal. Do you hear that? Okay, so, so look, connect, so, so, so connectivity, social media, the internet, everything being at our fingertips is seen as moving us towards utopia. Now, let's pause here. Technology is not bad. In fact, technology is, is like money. It is morally neutral. It takes on goodness or badness in as much as how we utilize it in our lives. Does that make sense? So it's morally neutral. I'm not anti-technology. I love the fact that I could text my wife on the way up here. Uh, 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 but technology takes on moral meaning and significance in as much as how it dictates things in and, in and our, of our own lives. You all with me on that? Okay, this one's pretty easy to disprove, right? Technology isn't necessarily making things better. We have more creative ways to kill each other. We can kill each other from further away than we ever have before. Uh, uh, Pornography addictions are rampant. Uh, uh, Marital affairs are at an all-time high. Uh, You know, I can download an app, and uh, some of my friends tell me, and pick out some woman to hook up with that night, and if she just clicks the same app, then we're good to go. It's not just assumed and blindly believed, at least hopefully as Christians, that technology is making everything better. They're pretty good examples of how it helps us have more creative and easily accessible ways of sinning. Okay, and, and it's important to, especially for the younger generation, help them see technolo- technological progression isn't necessarily bad, neither is it necessarily good. Does that make sense? And one thing I do uh, with guys is if you ask me to lunch, and you actually invite me to go to lunch with your phone, I will not meet with you again. I didn't come to have lunch with you and your phone. I came to have lunch with you. And so just training people in little ways to fight against this cultural tidal wave that if you're not connected, you're missing out, it's just not true. It's just not true. All right, we good? Number six, last one. Tradition, somebody tell me, what time is it? 509. I will be faithful. We have six minutes. Traditions, religions, wisdom, regulations, whatever else you want to add to that. Okay, traditions, religions, wisdoms, regulations, whatever it is. Anything that restricts individual freedom. Do you hear that? Anything that restricts individual freedom, self-definition or self-expression must be reshaped, deconstructed, or destroyed. Reshaped, deconstructed or destroyed. Um, okay, so I'll, I'll, end, I'll end with these, these couple things. Um, uh, it used to be 
that we could gather, even, even five, seven years ago, I could sit down with a group of non-believers or atheist friends or people of another faith and have a genuine dialogue that was predicated upon reason and fact and belief. Uh, that has gone away, especially in the public sphere. Okay, so reason and fact, data, uh, uh, is trumped by, exp- uh, by emotion and experience. Right, so I could prove to you mathematically that 2 plus 2 equals 4, but if you feel like it's 5, it's going to be 5. And there's nothing I can do about it. That's where we are. Okay, so our response, like, like these aren't fighting words for us. So the church, I was teaching this somewhere else uh, two days ago. Yes, I don't know when it was. Wednesday morning. Was that yesterday? Wednesday morning in Little Rock, Arkansas. Had a guy ask a question. Well, has the church organized corporately to respond to this? And I answer him, well, I don't think so, and I hope we don't. Because I don't know that that's going to be the response that's going to impact what's happening. Uh, 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 this isn't a dig in and we're going to fight again. This is where what Ken was just talking about, this idea that relationship is preeminent, is so true. It is in our discipleship relationships Think, uh, uh, teaching each other how to think biblically and navigate these shifts. One, so that we're protecting sound doctrine within the church. And two, as we train people to engage this in a relational way, right? that's countercultural. And Jesus is always calling us towards, like, the church is countercultural. Just look at these shifts we just talked about. Large-scale institutions should be distrusted, deconstructed, or destroyed. We're all saying, come join this large-scale Institution, for lack of a better word. Place yourself underneath authority. There's nothing that's not countercultural about biblical disciple-making. Amen? Look, we are not, uh, and look, we're tasting it right now, the whole uh, corporate movement where we married Christianity and politics of the 70s, 80s, and 90s has in a lot of ways largely backfired with the millennial generation. And so if we try to organize around the same strategy, we're going to get the same result. And so this individual... A pursuit of disciple making to walk in the steps of Jesus for the glory of God. It's helpful to know what frame, like they're being, this is reinforced all day long. All day long. So we, in loving, faithful ways, need to be showing the biblical response of responding to these things and navigating these things faithfully. Does that make sense? Okay. Uh, how much time do we have left? Three, three, five. See, you love that about Kenan. Yeah, the people that want to leave, two minutes. I'll appreciate that. All right, somewhere, um, I don't feel like it's only five minutes, so we'll stay as long as we want to, right? Time's relative, so is truth. Um, Okay, questions. Anything I can possibly help with? Let's read through them. That'll probably take all of our time. That'll be a good way to summarize it. Uh, uh, Yes, yeah, just read through them again. Okay, um, one. Humans are inherently good. Remember, just for recording's sake and y'all's sake, I'm not saying these things are true, and this is not what the Bible teaches. This is the cultural shift. Humans are inherently good. Forms of external authority are rejected and personal authenticity is praised. Therefore, large-scale structures, institutions are suspicious at best, evil at worst. Three, the highest good is individual freedom, happiness, self-definition, self-expression. Four, the primary social ethic is tolerance of everyone's self-defined quest for individual freedom and self-expression. And that's where we just talked about it has become a social justice issue. To restrict self-expression is to become immoral. Fifthly, <clears throat> the world will inevitably improve as individual freedom grows and technology progresses. And lastly, traditions, religions, wisdom, regulations, etc., anything that restricts individual freedom... Happiness, self-definition, or self-expression must be reshaped, deconstructed, or destroyed. That's right. And just a word of encouragement before I hand it over to Kenan. Uh, a great analogy to first century Roman Empire that propagated everything in a lot of the same ways. And Jesus' strategy has not changed. Amen? Thank you for pointing that out. Hey, let me see that mic just so I can... Uh... You just want me to stand? Yeah, kind of. Hey, so... Uh, I'm not touchy-feely. Yeah. <laughs> it's awkward for me. <laughs> Thanks, James. Um, 
Appreciate that. Uh, Jamie, hey, it's, it's time for dinner. What I w would like to invite you guys to do is, uh, um, if you have a question that you'd, I really want to make sure, um, scratching where the itch is. Again, uh, Ariana's going to talk about from uh, Fear to Faith in the Morning. That second hour I've got, track four, I'm going to walk through the principles for practically how do you actually disciple millennials. Okay, so I'll walk through that. And I will also make sure, because I wanted to in this session, I did not do it. I really wanted you all to hear what Jamie had to say just about the cultural shifts in thought, being aware of that. By the way, the, the only way to disciple into that secular worldview is the Word of God. Intersect the Word of God with what they're thinking and, um, and, and mine that out together. Don't, don't just come with uh, you know, great arguments and different TV stations to watch. Like, come with the Word of God. Um, okay, but if you have a specific question, could you just jot that down for me? And just you can come leave it right on this projector. And uh, I'll grab those. And in the back half of that session four, uh, I'm going to answer as many of those questions as I can. And then we'll have our last talk where we'll uh, uh, hopefully answer a few more of those together as a panel. Okay, so let me pray for uh, you guys and uh, sure do appreciate being with you this, uh, this 48 hours. Father, thank you for these men and women who care about the things of God. They care about you. They care about millennials. And Lord, I pray that you just burden our heart with what burdens yours, and that is that there is a, there's a generation that's being fed through every outlet and channel the, the lies which we just heard, which Jamie just shared, and uh, that's, that's how the world is discipling them to think. And God, we have an awesome opportunity uh, to, to bring the Word of God to the table and to love them enough to be heard, to, uh, to live the truth before them, share it with them, and then, and then the word is a lie, and we get to let it loose, as Spurgeon said. We, Lord, that I don't have to figure out how to change their mind on everything. I just continue to deposit truth and sow seed and let your spirit go to work. And we know um, that your, uh, your word never returns void. So it depend, no matter what fruit we see, we know that, uh, that your spirit uses your word, and, and your word catalyzes your spirit to move and tear down the walls of bitterness and uh, sinfulness in our heart and quicken us to brokenness and our need for a Savior and illumine us to the truth of Christ. And this is what every millennial needs, just like I needed. And God, I pray that these men and women would be those ambassadors, those witnesses, those truth tellers, uh, those who are willing to give themselves for the sake of Christ and give the gospel for the sake of Christ uh, to this next generation. So that this 20 to 40, which many churches have a gap, other churches have an uh, influx that they don't know what to do with, would be discipled well. Uh, that they might lead us all to maturity in Christ. You've been listening to the Disciple Makers Podcast. That message was from Downline Ministries track called Discipling Millennials, engaging the next generation of church leadership with the gospel. You'll find dozens of other great discipleship resources like this podcast at discipleship.org. May the Lord bless you as you seek to grow as a disciple maker.